at SFM Radio and at Pimelo Mutile on Twitter. All right, so there's a lot going on. Um, but one of the most interesting things is that I remember that at some point, different people, but at some point, people who are scenario planners warned us against this kind of thing. And and I was quite curious about, oh, okay. So we were warned and we didn't heed the call to sort of be ready. We're here now. What's to come? Dr. Mone Mostet is the director of the Institute for Future Research at Stellenbosch University. He joins us now on the line. A very good morning and uh, afternoon, by the way. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. We're already in the future. We are already in the future. So it's happened. You, you, yourself and your colleagues were anticipating that something was like this was going to happen. Has it come sooner than we realized? <laughs> well, perhaps I should just firstly uh, humbly say that we, we didn't make this prediction. <laughs> but um, there have been many who have studied the risks uh, of uh, epidemics including very famously uh, Bill Gates in 2015, who explained at at great length uh, exactly the sort of risks that we're facing today. Um, And yes, what we often find is um, people don't uh, bother to think about the future. And then, of course, when it happens, um, they, they act surprised and complain about unforeseen circumstances. The truth is, that um, even though the future cannot be predicted, you can anticipate what's more or less likely to happen. Yes, I mean, I wasn't necessarily saying Stellenbosch University, but in, yes. in other words, it's, it's been, people have been warning us that this kind of yes. thing is, is going to happen. And, and what kind of preparations were we meant to have in place? Well, I, I think the, uh, the sort of first issue that we're often concerned by is what would be the early signs. We call them dots on the horizon. And you only really see those dots um, if you follow uh, methods in our science, like uh, things that we call contextual environmental scanning. In other words, you look far and wide, very much across uh, disciplines. We call it a transdisciplinary scan. And you look out for some of these um, kind of early signs. Now, Um, Some of the drivers that have created the kind of perfect storm in which we find ourselves at the moment will include a kind of dysfunctional relationship between uh, people and nature, uh, the uh, hyper-globalization, hyper-interconnectedness all over the world, uh, rapid growth uh, in population, uh, health systems under stress, uh, frequent international travel by uh, growing numbers, uh, partially driven by economic growth. So, for example, think about the growth, economic growth in China over the last few decades, what that's meant for the middle class, and what's that meant, what that has meant for international travel by people from China, but also from other parts of the world. So the idea is that by, by looking at some of these uh, dots on the horizon, a kind of picture may start to emerge uh, of at least what is possible. I mean, th- there are some things that are starting to happen, which I find really interesting. So some companies have, for instance, started organizing transportation for people so that they don't have to go into public transport and, and find themselves at risk like that. Lots of small little interventions. People have been allowed to work from home, for instance. Suddenly, schools are allowing children to work from home and, and study in that manner. Are we likely to see us go back to completely what we had before COVID-19? Or is the world going to be very different even after the the epidemic? Almost irrespective of the question, our standard response is that we're very unlikely to ever go back. Um, 
we're, we're certainly unlikely to go back to anything uh, vaguely resembling the so-called basics. Um, and what this is, uh, one of the sort of consequences of this event is a rapid acceleration uh, in exploring the digitalization in a whole host of fields, and most of us know that from the school system. And so what's really interesting is that uh, this is forcing us to learn in a very rapid way the potential benefits of technological advancements, which many people, frankly, have said is all nonsense. But what we're realizing now is that uh, some of the technology that's been invented is, in fact, potentially at least uh, one of our saviors. And what that will mean is that you, you sort of have to wonder, well, you know, why should I revert to, yes, a, yes. Uh, to a kind of pre-digitalized world? So, you know, if, I, if I'm able to learn these things uh, in my pajamas, why do I have to learn them in a suit? Yeah. Um, and the, that's not to say that there isn't a very good answer to that question, but that question will have to be answered in a fresh way. And because we'll be learning, things cannot be the same. Well, are we ready to accept that? So we are now doing what we have to do because, the, the, you know, everything demands us to quickly shift. But yes. after all of this, and an employee says to somebody, well, you know, actually, I, I don't see the point of coming back into the office. Yes. <laughs> Thanks very much. I'm not interested. Uh, I'll continue as it is. Are yeah. companies, schools, churches, for instance, ready for yeah. that, where people have now accustomed themselves to doing things the way they are now and saying, well, actually, you know, actually coming in is an inconvenience and I don't feel like doing it. <laughs> well, um, I think it depends uh, sort of where on the spectrum you are. From a business perspective, for example, business is typically really quite pragmatic. Um, they're, they're not typically ideologically driven um, as, a, as a religious institution may be, for example. So, so from a business perspective, uh, the main consideration is the result and the performance. And so if the, what, what this period will, will do, very interestingly, is it will be, make us much more familiar with experimentation because we're forced to experiment. And as a result of the experimentation, we will discover new insights. And we will discover that it's not a case of either work from home or work in the office. It'll be a much more nuanced realization. Certain jobs work well from home. Certain work, uh, jobs work well from the office. And then even a single job may have some time at home, some time at the office. So business is very pragmatic. Religious organizations may be a little bit more uh, belief-driven, of course. It's, it's their foundation. And so uh, there may be some customs there that, that, that some people may argue, well, you know, don't fit our kind of philosophy. Organizational culture plays a role. Think about a university, for example. If, it, if a university is now forced to experiment uh, with digital learning, so uh, off you go, you leave the university, you go and sit in some place in the countryside, and now you attend your classes uh, virtually. Let's just imagine it works. Let's just for a moment imagine, and imagination is really important for futurists, let's just imagine it works. I actually learn something I have a lot more free time. Mm. I can, let's say, do a job on the side, and I actually pass the exam at a level that uh, satisfies me. Mm -hmm. The real question is, why go back? Yep. That the answer is not that you shouldn't. The point is, why go back? And there is a reason. Mm -hmm. One may argue, let's say, social refinement, you know, defining your identity, experiencing the full scope of the wonders of student life, and so on and so on. But now that I know that's actually the reason I'm there, now the provider will understand why students are there in the first place. It turns out, perhaps, that the reason is not to learn the content. 
I mean, it's fascinating because I imagine now that perhaps there are those who who found spaces like, as you said, universities, prestigious universities and so on, who are paying exorbitant amounts of money. Actually, the only thing they're paying for is the community and the culture. It's and, really and quite fascinating. And, isn't and it? tradition, so, not the actual content. Yes. So someone who earns a ridiculously high salary like you has a child and this morning they woke up and they, they went online to attend their school. Yes. Right next to them sits someone whose parents couldn't dream of paying those school fees. Yep. They now have exactly the same experience. Yes, because I do wonder really and seriously just how many people are going to ask themselves, well, actually... Should I really be paying those fees or I can have personalized study? I can have exactly what I've been getting online and maybe somebody just to help my child and at maybe a third of the price, equally good quality. I mean, that's, it's tough. But just again, I, I want to clarify, I'm not suggesting that there is not an answer to the question, why should I go? There mm. is an answer. Mm. It's just that we haven't been very good at answering it. And what that will provide, what that will now force, I think, providers uh, of these kind of services that may be delivered digitally is to, in fact, explicitly answer the question of why you should be there in person. So, for example, some of the work that we've done on the future of universities, the longer-term, multi-decadal futures of universities, is that the face-to-face version of universities that we all know sitting class and a professor lectures or hopefully facilitates, that version is an example of a premium scenario of the future of universities. In other words, that's the Mm. expensive version, the version that we have today as the sort of normal version. And the reason that's the premium version is that you get other benefits from being there in person. In the future, perhaps higher education institutions will understand what those benefits are in a much more scientific way rather than some sort of general personal development description. I'm I'm afraid to ask, but are there industries that are actually going to just disseminate and just collapse because of where we are. I'm, I'm really worried about, for instance, the taxi industry. I just don't know if, if the taxi industry is able to, to take on what we've got right now and survive it. I, I'm not sure. Well, I think one of the ways to answer that question is what is the probability of a substitution? And in the current uh, public transport system, for example, it's unlikely that, uh, that we will see a uh, a kind of a rapid substitution, and for a lot of the a lot of jobs, of course, working from home is not an option. You know, if you're a pilot, for example, um, you know, working from home is not optional. If you're if you're a domestic worker, for example, you know, working from home is is not an option. If you're a mine worker, for example, yes. working from home is not an option. So, so there is a wide spectrum of jobs that um, will escape largely unscathed from the. the crisis we're in, uh, but there are many other jobs that will be viewed in a fresh way, and I think we're talking about the fourth industrial revolution kind of perspective from industry, from business perspective, the experiments now will be conducted to determine whether performance levels can be at acceptable uh, uh, levels, and if so, 
If so, business will respond as it always does in an agnostic, pragmatic way. So when, when we go back to the taxi industry situation, I don't necessarily think it will die, but it may shrink. And the reason I think that is if a company has now already started providing for transport for those very people, going back is going to be a very difficult answer, a question to answer because I will be wondering, well, if you had the budget to, to transport us, where's that budget now? Why can't you do it now? Yes, I think one can expect that the standard answer to that, as it will be in government, is that that was an emergency budget. <laughs> um, and, of course, uh, organizations that look at the future, so-called vigilant organizations, mm. which, by the way, have proven in research to outperform non-vigilant organizations, yeah. ones that don't look at the future, vigilant organizations have such contingency plans, and those contingency plans have contingency budgets. Mm. And so that budget, uh, I very much suspect, will be treated as an emergency oh. fund. Okay. Um, and for that reason, when we go back to normality, which we will, mm. um, those uh, those funds will be allocated elsewhere and will in fact be secured for future emergencies. Okay, got you. There, there is a silver lining to all of this. I mean, I don't know if I'm being really, really um, optimistic, but there is. I mean, China right now, people are saying for the very first time they're seeing, they're seeing the sky. They're seeing yes. the blue skies because they've been home and they haven't been polluting uh, their spaces. Yes, dolphins have returned to the canals in Venice and so on. And... Um, Certainly from the Club of Rome perspective, for example, there's an awful lot of work uh, being done in, in trying to understand these kind of accidental benefits of what is undoubtedly a, a, an atrocious experience for people all around the world. And what's interesting about this is that it, it's almost showing us, in a sense, um, what we have sacrificed. Mm. And it's, it's a, it serves as a sort of reminder, you know, people are spending more time with the family. Of course, sort of humorously, we're saying, you know, perhaps too much time now. Uh, also dangerous for marriages and so on, quarantined <laughs> together. And so really a tremendous test of the relationship. Um, but um, in all seriousness, I, I, I think you're right. It, it, there is a kind of reminder, the air around China's clearing. Um, and and I, I think the big, one of the big issues here is it's a forced experiment. And for those individuals and organizations and governments around the world who are willing to learn from this experiment and, and record those learnings and implement those learnings, I do think there's the possibility of creating what we would call an alternative future. And, and so the, the temptation should not be simply to go back uh, to a world BC before corona, but that, that, uh, that kind of post-coronial world, if you like, presents a whole host of new opportunities, which I think we should learn from and, and experiment more. So, so this kind of thing has phases, correct? So there is a yes. shock that arrives and all of us are hysterical and all of that. And then there, there are people who take advantage of the situation. So the devils that come in. So, you know, we, we go out and buy toilet paper and then somebody escalates and, and, and tries to make the toilet paper a bit more expensive or doubles the price or whatever. And then on the other end... Then there'll be a good Samaritan who says, "Actually, I don't need so much toilet paper. Am I? Am I? <laughs> let me let me give it away. Is that sort of the normal pattern of how these things work, or am I being completely optimistic?" Yes, I, I think you've got the makings there of the Lou Roll Index. But um, uh, I, what what we would say is that there, there is certainly um, a kind of set of behaviours that is not completely unpredictable. Um, that doesn't mean you can predict exactly when it will hit. But, uh, there, I mean, there is greater probability and there is lower probability. So um, 
we're working, for example, at the moment at some of the drivers that, that may create uh, this post-coronial world um, once this is all calmed down. And um, the, the truth is that there are things that are more or less likely. So, for example, we think that social compliance, we, we, uh, we look at the behavior of, uh, likely behavior of society in relation to the likely behavior of the virus. Yeah. And... There are some typical behaviors that you might find, and some of that's driven by the media. And I think we're very grateful in South Africa that we have a very high caliber uh, traditional media. And by the way, I think we're being reminded of the enormous value of the traditional media uh, in terms of factual reporting, Mm -hmm. um, which social media is obviously uh, not really providing lots of fake news and lots of unsecured uh, information. Um, and opportunistic information. So, yep, you're right. There, there is, to some degree, kind of higher probability behavior. And, but but uh, to give you the sort of punchline of the scenario work that we're doing on the coronavirus at the moment, we think that both the society generally, as well as the financial markets, are responding to the worst-case scenario, which, in our view, is not the same as the most probable scenario. Ah, so maybe what I was trying to get at from a human point of view is are South Africans going to end up being nicer? So yesterday, I mean, it's not funny, but it was quite nice to see. You saw um, leaders of parties sort of play nicely together for the first yeah. time. Nobody had anything nasty to say to anybody else. It was kind of like weird. It was just thought, wow, there they are, and, and everybody's on the same page, and, and they can play very nicely together. I mean, that's an extreme case, and you know what I mean. It's not going to last forever. But, but I'm wondering if a problem like this, as you see globally, will somehow bring us together as humanity for the better? I think that uh, what happens is that uh, wartime behavior, and much of the dynamics we observe today, you know, were last seen in the Second World War. But but what war does is it provides a kind of common enemy. And uh, once you have a common enemy, you are no longer each other's enemy, Mm. uh, or at least the other is a, is a lesser enemy than the common one we all share. Um, because, because we have a joint enemy, you know, um, my, uh, my enemy's enemy turns out to be my friend. And so, so uh, from that sort of systemic interconnected view of the world, I think that's absolutely right. And, I mean, wasn't it very impressive for our own parliament yeah. um, to, despite some sort of uh, ceremonial objections, um, <laughs> actually banded together and made some good decisions. And the government's done really well, despite infighting in the government, which we all discussed in enormous detail just six weeks ago, mm. um, were able to uh, agree, uh, at least largely, on these kind of uh, containment measures and social, social distancing and, and all kinds of other protocols. And so I think that's exactly right. And we saw exactly the same thing, for example, in 1994 Mm. uh, with a peaceful transition. We saw the same thing in 1995 with the Rugby World Cup. We saw the same thing in 2010 with the the, uh, Soccer World Cup. And so I think what we have right now is a common enemy, and that's making us friends. Will that survive for the long term? Well, I think it's, it's, it's trying to teach us something 
and um, well, uh, Desmond Tutu, I think it was, who famously said, you know, the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. Oh. But I do think that, uh, that, that some of the some of the positive shifts will, will survive. That was exactly my next question, because we know history repeats itself, and, and, and this kind of thing is going to come back. So this kind of p- pandemic will come back again. I was going to ask you, just how good are we in, ret- in retaining the lessons from previous problems? I think... Um, I, I, I do have uh, perhaps not well-founded always, but some very strong belief uh, in my fellow man. And I, I do think if you look sort of broadly at society, then we have learnt, you know, that, that everyone deserves rights and water and electricity and peace and so on. And actually sort of in general broad brushstrokes, although some of the more segmented groups don't always uh, benefit, but in broadly speaking, the world has learnt um, that these things are wise things to do. So I, so I do think that as a society we're able to learn and that we're able to advance. We can debate whether we're now a more advanced society than mm-hmm. a thousand years ago. I would say in general terms that is undoubtedly the case. So I do believe that we can learn as a society, and I think, uh, remember, it's the, we are now more interconnected than we've been in the 400,000-year history of humankind. Mm-hmm. Globalization has never been this high. The population has never been this high. The interconnectedness has never been this high. The global travel has never been this high. The social, digital interconnectedness has never been this high. So actually, uh, in a sense, uh, it's the perfect storm for this kind of problem. Are events like this? And in a way, we've never had this. And so I do think we're paying attention and learning. Are events like this necessary for evolution? Gosh, um, I, well, according to whom, but I, I, I do think that sometimes we are forced to learn. Mm. Um, we sometimes see it in organizational advisory services that, you know, only, only the organizations that are, are about to, to, uh, to die yeah. um, are willing to listen to good practice. The others, um, you know, still believe they know everything. And so, um, Sometimes it, 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 it does provide, a, it's almost like when you have a health scare, you know, then maybe you'll consider to stop smoking or, you know, go for a walk at night or whatever it is. And I, in a sense, this is a, a kind of a, a global health scare. And I do think it is, it is challenging us about what we can learn. I think the, the, the thing we should watch out for, though, yep. is the, the dialogue that, um, you know, this is teaching us that we should go back. We cannot go back. Oh, I see what you mean. Thing I see, I see is that what we should mean. learn from this and yeah. innovate our way out. Yeah. Dr. Mone Mostad, thank you. Wonderful talking to you. Really insightful. Thanks very much for your time. Real pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Mone Mostad is the director of the Institute for Future Research at Stellenbosch University. I don't know what you thought about that. 011-482-1510. I will take those calls. It is a rolling coverage that we're going to bring you of COVID-19. We'll do this for as long as we need to. Some of it will be interesting. Some of it will be insightful. Some of it will just be you voicing your frustrations because I am sure you are frustrated like many, many people. We're all learning and we all need to be a bit 
patient with one another. I see your calls. I do see your voice notes as well. We'll take them when we come back. Voice note number still remains the same. It is 0614-104-107. And the number has changed, though, so take it down. 011-482-1510. I'm going to go crossing to Utsi Lesaku for the latest in uh, SABC News now at uh, 2.30. But after that, I will play those voice notes and I will take more of your calls.